0: We will continue our study and and actually conclude our consideration of the attribute that we refer to as God's sovereignty this evening in chapter 38 of the workbook. Before we jump into it formally, let me read to you some quotations from others that will I trust reestablish this truth in your minds. And also, I like to do this because it's good to hear other voices and and maybe even some names that you might not have been accustomed to hearing. And you might say, that sounds like a funny name. I should maybe look that guy up and learn some things. So um, let's hear this and and try to reestablish or fix this attribute of God's sovereignty in our minds. Speaking of God's sovereignty, Herman Bavink writes, quote, God is the creator and therefore the proprietor, owner, and Lord of all things. Apart from Him, there is neither existence nor ownership. He alone has absolute sovereignty. His will is decisive everywhere and Always. He his will is the final ground of all things. Again, that is to say, God is sovereign. Gerhardus Voss says, quote, God stands sovereignly above all possible things. Whether they will receive existence or how they will exist depends entirely upon His eternal purpose. And we see statements like that are, are, are rooted in and confirmed by God's Word. The, the doctrine of God's sovereignty is not a man-made doctrine or a man-invented doctrine, but is, it is found in God's Word. In Psalm 103, 19, we read, The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. There's nothing outside of the dominion of God. If we want to think about the kings of the earth, Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Or if we want to go all the way down to lowly sparrows, little birds. Matthew 10.29, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. God rules over them all, from the highest king's, down to the little bitty birds in, in the woods or the field, God reigns over all. It's God who's behind the winds of the hurricane. Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling His word. The wind blows where God tells it to blow. It stops where He tells it to stop. Matthew 8:26. Then He rose, And rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. When he wants the wind to stop, he says, Stop. When he wants the wind to start, he says, Start. He rules over all things. Here's a longer quote from A.W. Pink To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the Most High, doing according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. If you you say, I don't like the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, I don't like the way that that it's being articulated here. Well, you you may form another God of your imagination that that is not sovereign, but it won't be the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is absolutely, unwaveringly, unquestionably sovereign. That's what it means to be God. Now the question for this evening is if all of this is true, if God is sovereign, or, or we, we could say this simply, if God is God, then how should we respond? What should God's sovereignty do to us and in us? That's the question. So let me open with a word of prayer and then I'll... I'll begin reading from the workbook father we we recognize you as the only sovereign the king of kings and lord of lords we acknowledge that your kingdom rules over all that you raise up kings and put down kings that you give birth to little birds and then you take them out of the sky at your pleasure that you make the wind blow and you make the wind stop at your pleasure None can stay your hand or thwart your purpose and no one can rightly question or challenge anything that you have ever said or ever done because you are the only God. And we pray, Lord, that as we consider this and our response that you would once again move us down into the depths of our being and shape us, shape our minds, shape our thinking and our our view of life and everything in it, our view of of what we have been called to do, shape it according to who you are. We ask this again in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, our response to God is sovereign. I'll read the introduction there. God is creation's sovereign Lord and King. He rules over all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest to the smallest. He is free to do all things according to His own will and to do them for His own glory and good pleasure. No power in heaven or on earth can hinder what He has determined. What should man's response or what should be man's response to such a God? The Scriptures are clear. We should render to Him reverence and worship. When the sovereignty or lordship of God is correctly understood, it moves all men. To prostrate themselves before Him and to acknowledge that He alone is worthy of creation's reverence, obedience, worship, adoration, and praise. So the first heading that we have are these two words, reverence and obedience. How should we respond to God seeing that He is sovereign? Reverence and obedience. He says man's first response to the sovereignty of God should be reverence and obedience. To revere God is to acknowledge His highest place before us as Lord. And regard him with the utmost respect and awe. Now, regard, to regard something, that, that is within us. That, that is a, a, a position or an attitude or you might say a disposition of the heart and the mind. It, to, to regard is, is not something that you typically see. Now, you might see the fruit of what someone regards... But to, to truly regard is, it begins inside. And so to reverence God is to hold Him with the utmost respect and awe in the privacy of your own heart. This starts within us. It's not words or confessions. It's in the soul. It, it, is, it is good and right that we confess and say God is sovereign. But we, we ought to regard Him Internally, it must be a true conviction of the heart. With our children, very often we will—I I, I would not even very often—I hope always—we begin with them from a little uh, 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 an early age, teaching them these things. God is sovereign, and they might be able to confess and to say, "God is sovereign," and they'll learn that truth. But always, hopefully, to the goal that at some point they will actually, in their heart, begin to regard Him. That way, not, not just with the mouth, with, but with the heart, with the soul. So regarding or reverencing God in this way begins inside, but then it comes out. He says such an attitude of reverence will always result in obedience. So there's reverence and then there's obedience. Sovereignty implies a relationship of one exercising authority over another. If we truly acknowledge God's sovereignty that we will place ourselves before Him in reverent submission to His will. Notice, we will place ourselves before Him. Again, if we want to think in, in, an, in an absolute sense, an objective sense, we are beneath Him, period. He, he does what He pleases through us, with us, to us, upon us, without question. But here we're talking about how we should respond and it is our obligation that we bring ourselves before Him in submission. Again, inwardly with the mind acknowledging this conviction that I must submit to Him if He is sovereign. I have to bring myself before Him. The language of the Scriptures is to present yourself before the Lord. It's as if you're going to some location where He is and you say, You're sovereign, so here I am. Do as you please. Command as you please. Direct as you please. You call the shots. That's, that's what he's saying. When you truly regard God as sovereign, you will do this. You will present yourself to the Lord in absolute, unqualified submission. And any time we step out of absolute, complete, unqualified submission, we are practically denying God is sovereign. The first passage that we have referenced here is Psalm 47.2. Turn there with me. Psalm 47.2. The question is, how should we respond? Psalm 47.2, For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So here the answer is simple. God is sovereign. How should we respond? We should fear Him. We should fear Him. The the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So as soon as we begin to regard men in a way that we ought to be only regarding God, we will fall and fail. But as long as we regard God as we ought to, we have a firm place to stand. And that's not because of our own strength. It's because fearing God results in our drawing near to Him and leaning upon Him in all things. It's not that we we muster up something within us that then causes us to be able to stand in our own strength. The fear of God causes us to draw very near to Him and to rest upon Him. And that's why that becomes a safe place to be, to fear Him. The note says in this text, three titles are given to God. Lord, Most High and great king any one of these by itself should be enough to fill us with the deepest reverence how much more when all three are used together lord most high great king the word feared comes from the hebrew word yare which is which in this context denotes fear awe and great reverence the, the lord the most high is to be feared Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. Jeremiah 10, verses 6 and 7. There is none like you, O Lord, You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. How should we respond? Again, we should fear God. Here it says that fearing God is his due. That is to say, we owe him fear. And so when we don't fear God, we're actually robbing him of what is rightfully His by way of worship. We're robbing God of His worship when we do not fear Him. He says again, the, the call to give God the fear, same Hebrew word, that is due Him is placed among three great motivations. The greatness of His might, verse 6. The greatness of His sovereignty, verse 7. And the greatness of His wisdom, verse 7. Also notice that the passage begins with the declaration that there is none like God and ends with a repetition of the same declaration. No one is like him. Therefore, he is to be feared above all else. The question, who would not fear you, is clearly rhetorical. In light of who God is, the only logical response is to give him the reverence that is due him. He is owed our fear. All right, Daniel chapter 6, Daniel chapter 6, verses 25 through 27. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now here, the outworking of this fear or this reverence of God is that people are commanded to tremble before him. And it's interesting that this pagan king commands his people to tremble before God. We often act like our our emotional responses are out of our control. There's nothing I can do about it. If, if it bubbles, if it comes out, there's, there's no way for me to stop it. And if it's not coming out, there's nothing I can do to bring it about. Like those things are, are actually above us, that, that they control us. But here we see this, and, and throughout the Scriptures we see God commanding certain affections. He commands it. He commands us to weep with those who weep. He commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't have an option We are to rule our spirit, not let our spirit rule us. And that is another opportunity when you hear that. You think, well, that sounds nearly impossible. It's another opportunity when we fail to obey these things to to go to God and ask Him, Lord, shape my heart. There is a reason why God commands us to weep with those who weep. And we see some of our our brothers and sisters weeping and we don't weep. There's a reason. There's something broken We go to the Lord and we say, God, help my heart, shape me. I'm I'm not right. We run to him and he'll help us with that. The note says that Darius was the pagan king of the Medo-Persian Empire. However, through God's deliverance of the prophet Daniel, he came to recognize that the God of Israel was the one true God. He was so impressed by God's deliverance of Daniel from the lion's den that he wrote out an official edict to all the subjects of his vast empire demanding that all show reverence to the God of Daniel. According to his edict, men are to fear Daniel's God because, one, he is the living God, in contrast to the lifeless idols of stone that were typically worshipped by those outside of Israel. Two, he is his sovereign rule is forever. And three, he delivers, rescues, and performs signs and wonders in contrast to the false gods of the nations who did neither good nor bad. So, to our shame, we have... A pagan king who is saying, tremble before this God, he's sovereign. Now, based on these things, we we can summarize a few points. Our, Our thoughts of God should affect us. Just thinking of God should inspire an attitude of worship and fear. Just a thought. Thoughts of God should never be light to us. The, the, the idea and the thought and especially the truths of who God is should never pass through our minds as a light thing. Now, very often they do. And that is, again, where we have to run to the Lord. Our response to God begins in the inner man and works its way out. We have to regard him inwardly and then that will work, it, work itself out. And where our inner man is woefully cold and unresponsive, we must go to God for correction seeking to know more of Him and to know Him more through the study of His Word. Our coldness and our, our lack of response to who God is is just based on the fact that we really don't know Him like we think we do. We might know things about Him, but we really don't know Him like we think we do. And so that's where we have to run back to His Word, pleading that by the power of the Holy Spirit, what is revealed would be written more deeply upon our, our hearts and, tr- and we would be truly affected. Now, having considered the reverence that is due the King of kings and Lord of lords, we will now consider the obedience that must follow all true reverence. So let's turn to Psalm 66, verse 7. Psalm 66, verse 7. Where we read, Or God is referred to as him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. So we have the reference there to his sovereignty. We're reminded that he rules by his might forever, that his eye keeps watch on the nations. And then what is the response? Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. He says that word rebellious is translated from the Hebrew verb zarar, zar- which means to be rebellious, stubborn, obstinate, or contrary. And so in, in response to God's sovereignty here, His, his sovereign rule over the nations, and in, in, in what the Bible reveals about who He is, one response would be, or should be, that we should shiver, we should cower in fear at the very thought of rebellion, at the very thought of stubbornness before Him, the, the very notion, and, and we're very often we have these, these inwardly tempting uh, uh, impulses to exalt ourselves, to promote ourselves, to even take, our, take upon ourselves some prerogative of, of God Himself and dictating and orchestrating the affairs of our lives. That ought to scare us to death. Tremble at the thought of opposing this God. Rebellion should be clearly out of the question. Deuteronomy 27.10 is the next passage. Deuteronomy 27.10, You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping His commandments and His statutes, which I command you today. So again, we note God's sovereignty there, where He's referred to as the Lord, your God. That That is to say God is sovereign. He's the Lord, He's God, period. Now what is the response? Obey His voice. He is the Lord, He is your God. Obey Him. Obey Him. Now this is interesting. In Hebrew, He says the phrase obey the Lord is literally hear the voice of the Lord. The word obey is translated from the Hebrew word Shama, which denotes more than simply hearing. It also includes listening to or obeying what one has heard. We hear the voice of the Lord through His word and the specific commands that it communicates to us. You've you probably heard that word shama when, when you're referring to the Shama, hear O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. that's, that's where this comes from. And it begins with not obey, but hear. O Israel, the Shema, listen. We are commanded to listen or to hear, but the idea behind it is not just that audio goes over our eardrums, but that we are hearing in order to obey. If God is sovereign, as the Bible teaches, and we confess, then obedience to God's Word is not something that we institute only as it comes about in general providence. What I mean by that is we can't say, well God is sovereign, so I'll obey him. And so if I happen to see a Bible verse on a on a billboard somewhere, well then I'll obey that. And if I happen to hear something in church, well then I'll obey that. And if something else comes comes across my path, I'll I'll be sure to obey whatever I see. No, the the, the base command is first, hear. We are commanded to be hearing what God has said. If God really is who the Bible says He is, and we really are who the Bible says we are, then our best hours ought to be given to search out His commands in order to obey them. In other words, we pursue hearing. Sometimes with your children, you might do this, I do this. I'll, I'll, they'll, they'll be in trouble for something they did or didn't do, and they'll say, well, we didn't hear you. And I'll say... And that's the problem. Because in that instance, your job was to hear. Not just do, but to hear and then do. So we don't simply sit and wait, but we we go after the words of God, the commandments of God. We we need to understand their life to us. We can't live apart from them. So seek them out. Hear what He has said. And if we're not going after a hearing, then we're disobedient. Turn to the New Testament, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 29. This is the words of the apostles. They've been arrested. Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. We must. Peter and the other apostles had been commanded by the Jewish council to no longer teach the people in Christ's name. Their response was that they must obey God. Believers are to give honor to earthly authorities and to obey their commands whenever possible. However, when the commands of men contradict those of God, the believer must submit to God. We must obey. That was their attitude. We have to. We don't have an option. We must obey God. We are constrained, compelled, obligated, forced to obey God because He's sovereign. It's who He is. We we can't not obey the sovereign and again, any other attitude is a denial of God's sovereignty when we come and we are hearing God's word, when we're reading, we're studying, we come to things that, that will very often contradict maybe what we've been doing, what we've been, what we've been taught, what we've heard, what we thought. If we don't have this fundamental uh, character trait of God settled, God is sovereign, therefore I must obey then we will come to passages of Scripture and we will figure out a way to reason ourselves out of them or we'll, we'll, be, we'll be put into some sort of pressure from family or friends or a job or, or something yes. and we, you will find a way to reason away your convictions if you are not settled, I must obey God or die. That's my only option. I'll just read this one quickly from James 1.22. Be doers of the word, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. He says that word, uh, deceiving or to delude, comes from the Greek word para which means uh, to reckon wrongly or to miscalculate. When we hear but do not do, and yet, we still try to confess that God is sovereign. We're self deceived. We're deluding ourselves. We're, we've miscalculated ourselves. Now, God is still sovereign. We're, we're right about that. But we're deluding ourselves in thinking that we have done enough simply to hear and confess. We must obey. We must obey. Be doers of the word. Now, turn back to Malachi chapter 1. We've got a couple, two texts that we read last week. Malachi chapter 1 verse 6. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You see, God God questions them. He puts this reality before them and, and for us in this form. If I am, then why? Who he is necessarily implies some action. If I am this way, then why are you acting that way? They're they're incongruous. Why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I tell you? Luke 6.46 The same idea. He's pressing this issue. Why do you say one thing and do another thing? Why do you speak truth but live a lie? That's the idea. And then... I'll just read this one as well from Matthew's Gospel. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's not not just confession. It's not even just hearing. It's doing. It's obedience. Now, this is something that he clarifies here. This does not mean that salvation is by works. The truth communicated is that those who have believed unto salvation will obey the Father's will. Faith will not result in a perfect life on this earth, but it will result in a life that is being changed by the power of God. In other words, faith will result in works. Works are therefore the proof of faith. And you know that passage from Matthew. He says, many are going to say to me on that day, did we not prophesy? Did we not do many mighty works? And he's going to say, I didn't know you. And in here he says, not everybody who says Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not just confessing. It's not just saying words. I think it does us well or would do us well every now and then just to go to Matthew 7 and read that and put yourself in that place. Put yourself in the place of that one on the final day knowing Matthew 7 and hearing the the words come from his mouth depart from me as if they were spoken to you. Go there and imagine that place. Now that's awful. That's one of those thoughts that we say I'll go there and we're there for a few seconds and we got to get back out. We don't even like to imagine the thought. But let that awful fear of the sovereign Lord who will dispose of all creatures according to perfect justice on the last day, let that thrust you into the arms of Christ. Because what we, what we often do is we'll, we'll say, okay, I'll go there for a second. And then we, we get nervous and we run away and you say, you know what? I'm going to read more. I'm going to serve more. I'm going to sing louder. I'm going to learn more. I'm going to know more. I'll, I'll do everything, Lord. That won't get us there. That's what they were doing. Did we not prophesy? Did we not do these works? It's Christ alone who saves. You can't love Him enough to be saved. You, can't, you, can't, you don't know the Bible enough to be saved. You can't obey enough to be saved. It's Him. Let that thrust you into the arms of Christ. Salvation is to be found nowhere besides Him. So then, reverence and obedience. If God is sovereign, then He deserves our reverence, which will lead to obedience, doing what He says. The second heading or the second uh, category or or division is, is found in these three words, worship, adoration, and praise. Worship, adoration, and praise. And I'll read again. He says, if men think it proper to give homage and honor to the kings and rulers of the earth whose lives are mortal and whose kingdoms are frail and temporary, how much more should mankind honor the eternal king, whose kingdom endures forever? Although there are many kings and lords, God alone bears the title of King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone is supreme over all creation, ruling with absolute and unhindered sovereignty. The inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers before him. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. He reduces rulers to nothing and makes void the decisions of the most powerful among angels and men. There is no wisdom, no understanding, and no counsel against him. He does all things according to the counsel of his own perfect will, and no creature in heaven or on earth can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? He should therefore be the focus of all worship, adoration, and praise. He says the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. You, you kids ever catch a grasshopper in the grass? It's not hard. You wait till they stop and you just cup your hands around them. Sometimes you might take one of those or a cricket and you can stick a fish hook right through it and throw it in the water. It's, it's, it's like nothing to you you're not thinking i wonder what is this grasshopper's name where are his parents who is his family am i interrupting his schedule today no you it's nothing and that's what he's saying the the all of the inhabitants of the earth the nations of the world be, before god are as like nothing like grasshoppers and so we ought to worship him let's turn to psalm 99 Psalm 99 verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Now He asks, How is God described in this verse? And what does this description of God communicate to us about His sovereign rule over creation? So we have it broken up into several headings. First, we see that He reigns. The Lord reigns. From the Hebrew word Malach, which means to be a king or to reign as king. He is the great king over all the earth, the king of heaven, the great king above all gods, and the king of kings, and we know as Lord of lords, God simply Reigns, The Lord reigns. That is to say, He is sovereign. He's reigned from eternity. He reigns now. He will reign forever. Because God exists in eternity, His reign is not subject to our finite conception of time. He doesn't say the Lord reigned or the Lord will reign. He just says simply, the Lord reigns. It's who He is to reign over all. He says that he is exalted above the cherubim. And the note says we know very little about these angelic creatures. It is possible that like the seraphim, they are among the greatest of all created beings. Yet God is enthroned above them as their creator, sustainer, and Lord. These, these created creatures, angels, that, that they would take our breath away and leave us shuddering in fear if we were before them. And yet they are humbled beneath our sovereign God. He reigns. In verse 2 we see again that He is great. He's great from the Hebrew word gadol. And this, he said this word is a relative term. Some men may consider themselves great in comparison to others. But God is infinitely greater than all of creation combined. God is greatness itself. He is excellent. He excels everything. And He's holy in His excellence. So it's not simply that He excels in in the same nature as any created thing. He is outside of and beyond every created thing. And even in that, He excels. He is great. He is exalted above all the peoples. This comes from the Hebrew word rum, which may be translated high, exalted, or set apart. To give us a perspective of how exalted the Lord truly is, the prophet Isaiah tells us that the earth is His footstool. The nations of men we know from Scripture are, are so far below God that God is in, is described in His Word as coming down to see our little pathetic works of rebellion like the Tower of Babel. The Lord came down to see a little thing, a tiny thing. The greatest thing the, the human race could muster up and when they all got together and God said, I'm going to go down and see this, this thing. He's exalted above all peoples. His name is great and awesome. The word awesome is derived from that Hebrew word "yare," which means to fear or, or revere. God is not to be feared because of some inconsistency in His nature or unrighteousness in His work but because of His greatness and holiness. His name is great and awesome and we can see why the ancient people of God would not speak his name or even write his name because it is an awesome name a fearful name a name to be revered his name is not to be spoken as if it were common it isn't even to be written as if it were common it's not a common name. It's he's because he is not common. We have to regard him in this way. His name is great and awesome. As we see in verse three, he is holy. This comes from the Hebrew word kadosh, which means separated, marked off, placed apart, or withdrawn from common use. With regard to God, the word has at least two important meanings. One God is transcendent above His creation and two, He is transcendent above His creation's corruption. We've seen that before. He's holy. If there's any prayer that you pray every single day, make make it this kind of prayer. Pray that God would open your eyes to see Him as holy. Pray that He would open your heart to revere Him as holy and that you would be truly down to your bones gripped with the concept of God's holiness. And pray that prayer and beg that God would reveal more of His holiness until you see it. You, we cannot be too enamored with the holiness of God. You won't go too far. You can't. And very often we, we fall far short and we settle for, for very little. <clears throat> Ask God to let you see and to let you understand more. Psalm 99, verse 4. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. So again, we see his sovereignty in that he is called the king. And then we also see here that he is mighty, that he loves justice, that he establishes equity, he executes justice and righteousness, You see, if God were sovereign, but He didn't love justice, if He didn't love equity, if He didn't love righteousness, He would be a horror to every creature. But when we see who He is, that yes, He's sovereign, He is the King, and He is mighty, but He also loves justice and equity and righteousness, when we see that... He is who He is. Or we see Him for who He is. We realize that He becomes the delight and the blessedness of everyone who will who will behold Him and look to Him for, the, for how He has revealed Himself. If you were sovereign but none of these other things, it would be terrible. But, but He is sovereign and all of these other things. As we've said many times, all of His attributes coincide with one another. A perfect harmony. Now this last part I'll use... For our conclusion, because we end again with statements concerning our response. What should be the response? Verse 1 Let the peoples tremble, let the earth quake. If we only understood a hint of God's sovereignty, we would tremble. It would, it would affect our physical bodies. How do I know that? Because every time in Scripture a person is confronted with God, it affects their physical bodies. Verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. I wonder if, if, if we were to, to be honest, if we answer the question, how often does the mere thought of God cause us to praise Him? What would our answer be? Very often we can have such, such true, right, biblical, Orthodox, confessional thoughts of God, and we can say them, and nothing happens. We're not moved in the least. We ought to praise Him. The command which forbids us to take God's name in vain. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. The, the positive aspect of that same command is that His name is to be kept properly, revered and honored properly, and that we are to give Him the greatest praise and honor for who He is. We're commanded to praise the name of God. And then verse 5, Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Now in reality, God can't be exalted any higher than He is. So this can only mean that we must exalt Him in our own esteem of Him. We exalt Him in our praise of Him, our regard of Him. We, we exalt Him in, in our way of speaking, in the way that we conduct ourselves when we're about His business. We don't make Him any higher. This is our response in regarding Him higher in all that we do. It's God's glory to be sovereign. And so we ought to pray like Moses prayed. Show me your glory. Let me see you as sovereign. Help me to understand. And we might even pray that if God has to smash us to pieces before he can then help us get ourselves together. And then perhaps, like Jacob, we go the rest of our lives limping from that interaction. Lord, whatever you have to do, let me see just a little more. Let me know a little more. It, it will disrupt you. It will disrupt us. If God answers these types of prayers and He shows us a little bit of His glory, a little bit of His power, we see a little bit more of His sovereignty, a little bit more of His holiness, it will disrupt us. We, we will not remain the same. But we ought to be able to pray, Lord, if, if that's what it takes, do it so that I can know You more. Well, let's close with prayer.